I say good morning. Not sure I was on. <laughs> All right. It's good to see everybody this morning. Hallelujah. We are going to continue our series on master class. So I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 21, if you would. Um, that's really our main text for this message. We're going to be talking about the serpent on the pole this morning. Uh, you know, Master Class is a message series where we're looking at Jesus in the Old Testament. And um, so leading into that, as you're turning, I'm going to mention a couple of other scriptures. You know, I started off this way, uh, my first messages on this series, uh, talking about the fact that after Jesus had died and been raised from the dead, uh, he was, uh, he saw two of his disciples walking on the road to a village called Emmaus, leaving Jerusalem after that weekend. And uh, it was interesting, it's interesting because as they were going along, they were talking about what all had happened that weekend, man. Jesus just walks up beside them and the Bible says they didn't recognize him. And he goes, what are y'all talking about? And why are you so sad? And they said, have you not heard what ha- about the things that have happened? And he said, what things? And uh, so anyway, they begin to talk about it. They said, oh, how Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was proven by God to be a prophet by many wonderful deeds and words that he spoke. And we thought he was going to be the one to save us. But he died. They put him to death. And then they, they went on. And what was interesting is that uh, Jesus let them talk. And then let me find this here. After they had said that, um, that he had been put to death and there was rumors of his resurrection... Jesus says to them these words, he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know, everything about Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, it was in the scriptures. It just wasn't revealed yet. And um, so now in the New Testament, everything that was concealed in the old has been made revealed to us in the new. And um, so we have the fullness of revelation in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. But there's a lot of value at looking back to the old and seeing the way that God had put uh, Jesus and everything that he would accomplish in the Old Testament in types and in shadows, and in prophetic pictures. And we don't gain any new theology by looking back, but what we do is we can get a deeper understanding of who Jesus is, and what he accomplished when he came and he died on the cross, and he was raised from the dead. And you know, in fact, all of the Bible centers on the person of Jesus. No matter what story it is, it's all about him. In fact, in John chapter 5, he said this, You search the scriptures, 
For in them you think that you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. See, the source of life is not the written word, it's the living word. The written word is given to reveal the living word. And when we relate to the living word, then we receive life. See, we didn't, Jesus didn't come to give us a new religion. He didn't come to give us a new creed, a new set of rules, or even to remind us of an old set of rules. He came to give us life. And that life is the life of another person. See, Christianity isn't about me trying to live for God. It's about me yielding to the life of God that He put on the inside of me by His Spirit. And allowing Him to live through me. And I tell you what, that's a great revelation. And that is, there's great liberty in understanding that. That I'm not called to live for God. I'm called to learn how to allow Him to live through me. Because Christian life isn't hard. It's impossible. That's what you got to realize. The life we're called to isn't hard. It's impossible in your own strength. Which is why Jesus died so that the life of God could be imparted to us by the Spirit of God and He could begin to live through us and produce the same life that God has in eternity. He could produce it in us and through us. Hallelujah. So we could have a supernatural kind of life. Not a life that other... You know, because all religions have creeds. They have standards of morality. What separates us? from all of the religions of the world. We have the life of God and they don't. Say, well, that's a pretty bold statement. A lot of people wouldn't like that. Well, take that up with God because he inspired John to say in 1 John, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Pretty plain. So Jesus came to give us his life. But the way that he did that, that's what I want to look at today. So in Numbers 21, we're going to look at a story. The children of Israel had been wandering in the wilderness. And uh, in their wandering, they began to complain and grumble about their situation. What's amazing, they had their, their nation had, had spent 400 years in slavery. God delivers them by by causing ten plagues to be poured out on their enemies, their oppressors, brings them out, and and, uh, Pharaoh and his army are chasing them to the Red Sea, and they are seemingly between a rock and a hard place, (laughs) and God delivers them by parting the sea, and they're able to walk through on dry ground. See, they're seeing all this happen. They go through on dry ground, they get to the other side, and the Egyptians follow them in. And once they're all in the sea, God causes the waters to come over them and destroys their enemies who are chasing them down. Delivers them with a mighty hand. And then when they're in the wilderness, he feeds them with manna from heaven. Bread from heaven comes down supernaturally every morning, and it's right there. All they got to do is walk out and pick it up. I mean, the Bible calls it angel's food. And they begin to complain against the provision of God. Man. (laughs) Before we blame them or talk negative about them, (laughs) it says the people spoke against God and against Moses. 
Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. You know, I'll say this. This is just a side note. Watch your words. You can prophesy your own future. In fact, you are prophesying your own future. They say, uh, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? God didn't bring them up to die. He brought them up to bring them into something. But being brought into something requires a, a trust. That's where you lose most people. Whenever you bring people out of something, you're a hero. Whenever you try to bring them into something, you're a villain. <laughs> and so God is trying to bring them into the promised land. In fact, they, they rejected it. You know, they didn't trust him enough. They didn't trust him enough to bring them into a land that flowed with milk and honey. In fact, in the chapters before this, they come to the edge of the promised land. They send in spies. It wasn't God's idea. It was their idea. So they come back. They got this fruit. They got grape clusters so big that two men had to carry them on a pole. They said, man, that place is just like God said. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. It's got fruit. Here's the fruit of it. But, and that's where we all get in trouble. We let our big butt get in the way. And uh, so they, they say, but there's giants in the land. As if God didn't already know the giants were there. In fact, he chose you to go in so he could show himself mighty just the way he did with the Egyptians by causing the giants to be driven out of the land. And it wasn't them that was going to do it. It was God through them. And they said, there's walled cities. You know what we find out later? They didn't even have to do anything but walk around the walled cities as God told them. And those walls fell to the ground. But they were not seeing, they weren't keeping focused on what God had said. They were focused on what they were seeing around them. And they began to complain and began to grumble. And it says, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. I can just sense in my spirit right now, people are going, oh wow, God sent serpents among the people? Let me just say this. In the Hebrew, there's no causative sense for a verb, but there's an allowative sense. God allowed the serpents to come. In fact, he had no choice. The serpents, think about this, they had been there for years and years and years. The serpents were there the whole time. They were just protected from them until they said, you brought us out here to die. Well, <laughs> serpents were there the whole time. That's the way it is in this world, man. I mean, the serpent is around all the time. But we're protected. In fact, we have promises of protection. But our own mouth can get us into trouble sometimes. When we stop looking at what God has said and we start looking around at the circumstances around us, we can say things based on what we see with these eyes rather than taking the word and seeing what God has said with these eyes. Allowing ourselves to see by faith that what God has declared is our reality rather no matter what we see with our physical eyes. But they did the right thing. They confessed their sin. They said, we've sinned against the Lord. Pray that uh, God would take away the serpents from us. You know, that's a good thing to do. He said, then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. 
And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. You know, one thing I think about this, um, that they asked God to, they said, ask God to take the serpents away. But God did more than they asked. They didn't ask him to heal. They didn't say, go ask God to heal us, those who have been bitten. They said, just ask God to take the serpents away. But God always goes beyond. See, it's not his will that any perish. He came not to... Not to condemn man, but to give us life and life more abundant. It's the enemy who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And if we yield our tongue to him, we're prophesying his ability to do those things in our life. But it's still, it's not God's will. And he goes beyond. Man, when we confess our sin, he goes beyond just removing something. But he wants to bring healing and wholeness to our lives. Man, he went beyond what they even asked him to do. Why? Because his will for us is always for good and not evil. It has always been for blessing and not cursing. To bring us to a hope and a future where we could experience life as God designed it to be experienced. And you know, I think about the serpent bite. You know, uh, Sam was talking about Genesis 3. You know, whenever... They were in the garden and they yielded to the words of the serpent. Mankind was bitten. You know, because it's not really the bite. It's the venom that courses through your veins when you've been bitten by a serpent. Kevin knows all too well. (laughs) He's over there shaking his head. (laughs) Yeah, the bite hurts. But it's the venom. And in the garden, whenever man was bitten by the serpent, when he yielded to... The words of the serpent, there was a venom that came into mankind that has been coursing through the veins of man. The nature of the serpent, we all received. But God gave them the answer. He said to put a a fiery serpent on a pole. And he explains what that is in the next verse. Moses made a bronze serpent. So we're going to talk about this a little bit because there's great revelation in the material that he used in order to make this. But the point is, is that this is a type of Christ, which if you've never really looked at this before, it's odd that the type of Christ would be a serpent. Because we know him as the Lamb of God. We know him as the Lion of Judah. We know him as many things. But to see him typified as a serpent is an odd thing to think about. But Jesus himself said, this is symbolic of me. Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 14, Jesus says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. What I want to talk about today is what does that symbolize? Because... The serpent, in the, the serpent on the pole in the wilderness is typical of Jesus on the cross. And that just as in the wilderness, think about this. When he said, um, when he said, everyone who looks on this serpent on the pole, when he looks at it, he'll live. He'll be healed of the, the venomous bite that he incurred. And he'll be healed. 
You know, I was thinking about it, and I thought, man, it'd be kind of hard to do because, you know, you'd be looking around, people are dying. Think about this. Think about what was going on. People were getting bit by serpents. They were dying. Probably people crying out. You know, we're talking about millions of people here. I don't know how many of them it was. But it would have been hard if you'd been bitten by a serpent and go, okay, I'm going to look at this. You know, because of everything going on around you. And sometimes that's, that's what happens to us is we're so consumed with everything that's going on around us that the enemy is doing that it distracts us from the one thing that God has provided to save us and to heal us. Which is what? It took a belief. You know, they're probably thinking, what's that going to do? I know, that's, <laughs> I know my own human nature, that's what I'd be thinking. Well, what good is that going to do? To look at a serpent on a pole, you know, and then I'm going to be healed by it? You know, um, but this says, Jesus said, as he lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The phrase lifted up, you know, um, in another place, look at John 12. He uses this same phrase. Jesus says this, he said, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. You know, the phrase lifted up, we've used this uh, figuratively a lot. You know, we'll say, because the, the translation is that if I be lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. Did you know the word people isn't even in the original? In fact, if you've got a King James Version, it's italicized, which means that word is not there. It was added by the translators. It's an interpretation of what that was meant to say. It actually says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. I will draw all blank to myself. And I'll say this, I'll say, yeah, it was Jesus on the cross that draws people to God. But he wasn't talking figuratively here. In fact, when he, when he says lifted up, it's talking about a physical lifting up. It says in the very next verse, he said this signifying what kind of death he was going to die. So it wasn't a figure, if, I, if people are extol, exalting me and lifting me up by declaring things about me, then I'll draw people to myself. No, he was saying that if I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all to myself. What was he talking about? Well, you know, in the uh, story in Numbers, the bronze is symbolic. There's nothing in the Word that is just there uh, just to be artistic. Bronze in the Old Testament represents divine judgment. In fact, the altar and the laver in the outer court of the tabernacle are bronze. Why? Because that was the place of God's divine judgment against sin. That was the place where they brought their lambs they sacrificed their lambs and they threw them on the altar. Bronze is symbolic of divine judgment. So when we see Jesus typified as a serpent, it was, it was, a, it was symbolic of the fact that Jesus would become sin for us 
And that God's divine judgment would fall on Him. And that when we're able to look upon that, See, the word look in the Old Testament wasn't just physical. So in the Old Testament story in Numbers, yes, it was physical. They were looking at this bronze serpent on a pole. But us in the New Testament, we're on the other side. We're not seeing Jesus physically on the cross. We are considering. See, it's about a revelation. Jesus is the antitype of the type in the Old Testament. It's not the physical looking. It's the consideration of what His death on the cross did and what it accomplished for us. What we now have because of His dying on the cross. Because of Him becoming the serpent on the pole. That when we behold and we consider and we understand and we release our faith for that thing that He died for, then we can receive life and we can receive forgiveness and we can receive healing and we can receive everything that He died to provide for us. See, Him becoming the serpent was that He took on the nature that we took on through Adam's rebellion. He became what we were so that we could become as He is. And now as He is, so are we in this world. Kind of getting ahead of myself, but look at Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. As you're turning, you know, in John 12, where he says, you know, uh, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all to me. What's he talking about? I'll draw all judgment. In fact, the verse before, read it in context. It says, now is the judgment of this world. See, what happened was when Jesus hung on the cross... The divine judgment that we deserved was poured out upon Him. Why? That's what I want to look at. We have to consider. We have to consider the work of Calvary. Which that reminds me of the testimony of Derek Prince, which pastors shared before. But I'm going to share again the... Uh, the testimony this morning just to kind because of, it reminds me so much of this. But Derek Prince had a serious illness and God led a couple of missionaries to come to the place where he was at to minister healing to him. And uh, anyway, he gets in this car with these two ladies and they begin to pray. And these were, you know, Pentecostal ladies. These were ladies that were filled with the Spirit. They began to pray and in fact, he's telling the story. He said, this one little gal, one of them was from Oklahoma. He said she just began to shake as she was praying. He said she began to shake. He said then the other lady began to shake. He said then I began to shake. Then the car began to shake. Man, we need some prayers like that. <laughs> Whole lot of shaking going on. I've heard people say, you know, prayers that don't move you don't move God. Well, listen, God's not the one who's stuck anyway. We need to pray prayers that move us. But anyway, they were praying, and, and as they were praying, uh, the little gal from Oklahoma, or a, a tongue came forth, a message in tongues, unknown tongues. And then the little gal from Oklahoma, she interpreted that message, and here's what it said. And I'm telling you, as I've thought about this, 
If there was ever a message in tongues that I've heard interpreted, man, this is it right here. This is what she said. So simple, yet so profound. She said, consider the work of Calvary. A perfect work. Perfect in every respect. Perfect in every aspect. And that was it. Think about those words. He was in need of physical healing in his life. Tongues went forth. And a message so simple, yet so profound, that so relates to what we're talking about. Consider the work of Calvary. See, when, when something like that happens to us, we consider everything else. Well, you know, WebMD, what are, the, what are these symptoms, you know? Uh, you know what does the doctor say? How many times have people ask that? Well, what did the doctor say? Who cares what the doctor said? You know, I mean, I'm not saying don't follow whatever they tell you. I'm just saying consider the work of Calvary. My goodness. Consider the work of Calvary a perfect work. Perfect in every respect. Perfect in every aspect. I submit to you that most believers couldn't sit down and write such a concise um, message of the gospel in such few words. Man, that, that's the Holy Spirit. To be able to, to take all that is written in the gospel and, and bring it down to one short, concise little message that really reveals everything that the gospel message has to say. Consider the work of Calvary. A perfect work. Perfect in every respect. Perfect in every aspect. As I think about how perfect it is in every respect... I think about Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. It says, by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's not talking about sanctification like becoming holy. It's talking about the sanctification of being set apart unto God through coming through Jesus. He has perfected forever by one offering those who come to God through him. Oh my goodness. Perfect in every respect says to me that his work was complete. There is nothing left to do but consider the work of Calvary. Consider its perfection. But here's what the enemy will do. He'll get you looking at you. Oh, anything he can do to get your eyes off of the work of Calvary and the perfection of it, he's going to do it. If he can get you at looking at yourself and seeing if you have qualified yourself to partake of healing or whatever forgiveness that you need, he's got you. Because he has just diverted your attention away from the one thing. The one thing. Perfect in every respect. It's a complete work. That word perfection is talking about the completion of Christ's work. There's nothing you can add to it. There's nothing you need to add to it. But how many believers are trying to because they've never truly, fully uh, considered the work of Calvary and the perfection of it. 
And the very reason we're failing to partake of what Jesus provided for us is because we're not putting all of our faith in the work that He did at Calvary and the perfection of it, and we're trying to add to. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I believe that we're going to find some liberty today. We need to realize that there's nothing that you can add to it, and there's nothing you need to add to it. In fact, we'd get our eyes off of everything else and just look at the one thing. And we would just consider the work of Calvary. If we would be consumed with the work of Calvary, we would experience more by accident than we ever did on purpose. Problem is, believers are running around trying to do all this stuff, trying to complete what Christ said, you know, as if he's left things undone. And we're trying to use the way that we're doing all these things to try and persuade God to do something for us that he's already done for us. In fact, he did more than we even ask. (laughs) He is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we ask or even imagine through the power that's at work within us. What do you mean? The power that is at work within us is released by our revelation of considering the work of Calvary, the perfection of it, that it's perfect in every respect and perfect in every aspect, that everything that Jesus came to do, everything that God desired for Him to provide for His people, He has fully provided it for us. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 53, that chapter, man, it so fully lays out the nature of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. In fact, I'm going to turn, I don't have these verses, but I'm going to turn over there just because I want to point out some things here. If you read through Isaiah chapter 53, really the whole uh, context of it is that he was a, sacri- a substitute. It's his vicarious suffering as a substitute for us that Isaiah was looking ahead prophetically and revealing. In fact, he says um, in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was laid upon him. And the verse I have right here, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The word iniquity, it means rebellion. Iniquity is an inner thing. It's not your outer sins. It's the root of them. The venom that the serpent put into mankind was rebellion. You know, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But not all of us have sinned alike. (laughs) But as in our religiosity, we love to judge people who sin differently than we do. <laughs> but the one sin that we have all partaken of is rebellion. Because all sin is just rebellion against God. Iniquity means rebellion. 
But it means more than that. If you look at the Hebrew word, which for the sake of time I'm not going to go into, it means rebellion, it means guilt, and it means the consequences of guilt. Think about it like this. The Lord has laid our rebellion, our guilt, and the consequences of our guilt upon Him. That's what I want to talk about. For, for us to consider every aspect is to consider uh, the great exchange that happened on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, God laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He laid on Him our rebellion. He laid on Him our guilt. And he laid on him the consequences of our guilt. The reason why is so that he could provide an exchange. See, that we could exchange our rebellion. That we could exchange our guilt. And that we could exchange the consequences of our guilt for something that belonged to Jesus. Hmm. Mm-mm. Look at verse 11 in Isaiah 53. And I'm going to insert uh, God and Jesus in here just for the sake of being able to see this. God shall see the labor of Jesus' soul. See, that was a work. It was his labor on the cross. God shall see the labor of Jesus' soul and be satisfied. You miss that. God is satisfied. He's satisfied. Most people don't have that understanding. What do you mean he's satisfied? Because the work of Jesus' soul was perfect. He met every legal demand that was against us because of sin and rebellion. Every legal demand, he met it at the cross. Why? The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins must die. Jesus on the cross, he took our iniquity, our rebellion. He took our guilt. He took the consequences of our guilt on himself. That's why the lamb became the serpent. Is the serpent was the symbol was symbolic of him becoming our rebellion, becoming our guilt, and becoming the consequences of our guilt. In fact, Isaiah fifty two says he was marred more than any man. You know, when you look at that in the original language, it it basically says this: that when they looked at him on the cross, he didn't even look human. Let me tell you this. It wasn't the cat of nine tails. It wasn't the crown of thorns. It wasn't the nails in his hands. It wasn't the nails in his feet. It wasn't the beating that caused Jesus to be marred to the point of not even looking human anymore. It was when the iniquity of us all was laid upon him that on the cross he became so contorted that he resembled a serpent on a pole. Why? Sam said it earlier about when we look at the cross, it's hard to look at. Well, it's really hard to look at when you realize that it was your nature 
It was your iniquity. It was your guilt and the consequences of your guilt that caused Jesus to be marred more than any man ever has before. Marred so badly that he wasn't even recognizable as a human anymore. It wasn't what the Romans did to Jesus. It was what our nature, our rebellion, our guilt did to Jesus on the cross. Mm. We need to let that we need to let that sink in. We need to allow that to work on our heart to where it effectually works in our heart and appreciation for the sacrifice of Jesus. You know why people struggle between the nature of the flesh and the nature of the spirit so much? It's because we have not fully appreciated mm, what Jesus went through on the cross for us and allowed it to work in our heart both the desire and ability to walk in the life that he provided for us. But God is satisfied, man. That's where the good news comes in. God is satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. And by His knowledge, by the knowledge of what Jesus did for us, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Mm-mm. There is a great exchange. As he bore our guilt so that we could be declared innocent. That he was punished so we could be justified. Mm. He was punished so that we could be justified. The word justified means to be legally declared innocent. Even though you were guilty. See, everybody's got to come to the realization, and this isn't popular in the world, I know. But we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter what sin you've committed. I'm speaking into the camera right now. I feel like there may be somebody watching this. We have to realize that we, have, we fall short of the glory of God. But we are justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redeem means to pay a price. And the price was His blood. His blood was the full payment. It was the required payment. But it was the provided payment. For all of man's sins. For all time. But you must behold the work of Calvary. What does that mean? You have to put your trust in it. It's not just to look at it. It's to put your trust in it. For everyone who believes in Him shall receive eternal life. That means I've put my trust in it. I see the grotesque uh, image of the cross and I realize that I was there. Hmm. I realize He was there so that I could be there. And so God sees that Jesus died for us, but he also died as us. He was punished so that we could be justified freely. Oh my goodness. He was innocent. He was the just and he died for the unjust. 
we were the unjust that he died for. So that we could freely be declared innocent eternally in the sight of God. Oh, and that our iniquity, our rebellion that we all participated in was placed upon Him. He bore our iniquity so that we could be justified and we could be declared innocent. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here's the exchange. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's beyond being justified. To be justified means you've been freed from the penalty of sin. Because Jesus was punished, you'll never be punished by the Father if you have looked and beheld uh, the work of Calvary and believed on it and trusted in it. You'll never be held accountable for that. You'll never be punished. The wrath of God will not be coming upon the believer because the wrath of God was already placed on Jesus at the cross. Divine judgment fell upon Him so that divine righteousness could fall upon you. To be justified just means to be freed from the penalty of your sin. But to be righteous means to be made as you ought to be. For the believer, whether he even knows it, whether he recognizes it, he has been made as he ought to be. Righteous. Perfectly righteous. My goodness. Perfect righteousness is made ours by faith because of the perfect punishment that was placed upon Jesus and because the Father is satisfied with His sacrifice. Mm. And He was made sin. He was made the nature of sin. In other words, He took on the venom. You know, there's this... uh, I didn't think about this before, but I'm going to share it anyway. Kevin told me about this show on, I think it's on Netflix, where they allow things to bite them and sting them. Kings of pain, that's what it's called. I think, what is wrong with these people? I mean, murder hornets. They allow them to stick, you know, sting them. Snakes, they allow them to bite them just to... It's crazy. People are crazy. (sighs) But then when you think about it, Jesus submitted himself to the bite of the serpent. Willingly. He took the bite. He took the venom on himself. Mm, He became sin. He knew what was going to happen. We read it in John 3. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the He was declaring what was going to happen. He knew he was taking it upon himself. I think that's why in the garden it wasn't the physical stuff. It wasn't the physical stuff. When he said, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. It wasn't the physical beating and the things that the Romans were going to do to him. It was that he was going to take on the iniquity of mankind and bear it. Holy God in flesh was about to submit himself to the bite. And become the very thing he detested. Because he operated in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. 
Oh, he was repulsed by it, but he submitted to it. Why? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It was seeing what it would do for us. He took the, he took the bad side of Calvary so we could have the good side. Mm. My goodness. He became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness we could never produce on our own was given to us as a gift. You know, the Jews, they had the law. They had it for thousands of years. Not one person was ever made righteous by keeping it. Why? The purpose of it was never to make anybody righteous. It was to reveal our unrighteous nature. That we'd been bitten by the serpent and we had something within us that we couldn't do anything about. We didn't have an anti-venom. But Jesus came and he took the bite. He took the venom. He took the thing that was afflicting us so that we could have the righteousness that was his by nature. Oh my goodness. He was made sin for us that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. Look at John chapter 1. Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. Through Jesus, you're fully accepted. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we have been accepted in the beloved. You may have been rejected. You may have been rejected by your friends. You may have been rejected by a spouse. You may have been rejected by uh, your, uh, uh, your parents even. But you have been accepted. Oh, man. Do you know, I believe rejection is probably one of the greatest things that, that people struggle with in life. That's why people try so hard to be accepted. And so many people, they, find, they put themselves in situations, uh, compromising situations and things, just trying to be accepted. When if we would actually behold the work of Calvary, if we would consider the work of Calvary and let it reveal to us the fact that we have been accepted by our Creator, by Almighty God, the acceptance of people would begin to lose its value. I'm telling you what, man, I lived my life a lot, a lot of my life before when I was lost in the drugs, when I was lost in the alcohol and all the partying and stuff. A lot of that came about because I was searching for acceptance. But I'm telling you that whenever I found out that Almighty God, the Creator of heaven and earth, the Lord of glory, accepted me based on what Jesus had done for me, I began to care a whole lot less about what people think. Oh my goodness, you want to be set free today? Quit worrying about what people think. Quit trying to get the praise and the applause and the acceptance of men. And behold the work of Calvary, a perfect work, perfect in every respect, perfect in every aspect, a work that made you acceptable, that made you righteous, that made you justified in the sight of Almighty God and allow His acceptance begin to just change your heart. Hmm. 
Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus became cursed so that we could be blessed. You know, this doesn't hit us the way it would have hit Jews back in that time period. But in Deuteronomy 21, it says, If anybody is killed and placed on a tree, know that that man has been cursed. We came under the curse of never being able to be good enough. And so we were uh, not qualified to have God living in us by His Spirit. But on the cross, Jesus took the curse. He became cursed. You know, if anybody, the day, in that day when the Jews were standing around, they saw him up on the cross. They said, that man's cursed. That man is cursed. And they would be right. He was cursed. What they didn't know is he was cursed so they could be blessed. What did Jesus do? He came and he was punished so that we could be acquitted. He became sin. He bore our sins so that we could be made righteous. He took the curse so that we could be blessed. No wonder Ephesians says that he has blessed us with every. I said he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has already blessed us. Listen, there's nothing else for you to try to perform for or try to persuade God of. He's already persuaded. He was persuaded before the foundation of the world. This plan came about in the heart of God before we were ever even made. Oh, the wisdom of God. Oh, the providence of God that He sees ahead and makes provision and all things were finished before He began anything. Man, can we trust Him? That's what I'm trying to get across today. Consider the work of Calvary. Quit putting our trust in the things of this world and even in our own selves. Abandon that and put our faith fully in what Jesus has done on the cross. The enemy is defeated. Listen, your greatest foe isn't the devil. <laughs> in fact, we give the devil more power. Colossians says he was disarmed, defeated, stripped actually. Your greatest foe isn't the devil, it's your own flesh. <laughs> And the reason your flesh has so much power is because you're not considering the work of Calvary. Oh my goodness. And you're trying in your own flesh to defeat your own flesh. <laughs> hmm. Look at Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is a misfortunate interpretation of this, what this actually says. In fact, if you look at the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it says he has borne our sicknesses, 
carried our pains. Not griefs, sicknesses. And many will try to explain away healing, divine healing, as belonging to the believer by saying, oh, this isn't talking about that he bore our sicknesses. Well, it's funny. They should have informed Jesus about that because in Matthew 8 and 17, he said that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. (laughs) And this was said right after he was healing people of all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. And here, right, if we would let the Bible interpret the Bible instead of trying to interpret the Bible with our own intellectual ideas. But see, here's the thing, and I don't want to get off track, but men love to sound important by being intellectual. They love the heights of intellectualism because it puffs them up, makes them look smart or great. But you know that statement that that little girl interpreted in the, in the car? It didn't exalt man in any way. It exalted the work of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell you what, I could say a lot about that. But I'm just going to move on to my next scripture. <laughs> the Holy Ghost glorifies Jesus. You want to know how you can determine whether something's from God or not? Who's it exalting? Who's it glorifying? Mm. Okay. So he took our sicknesses. Peter says, himself bore our sins. See the exchange? There it is again. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we having died to sins might live for righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed. What was the fourth thing? He became our, he bore our sickness so that we could be healed. Consider the work of Calvary. I want everybody to stand. Consider the work of Calvary today. You know, there's pretty good pretty good um, group of people here today that could all be going through a whole lot of different things. But what I talked about today, the exchange that was made on Calvary, God made the provision. There's nothing that anybody's going through here today that wasn't laid on him at Calvary. It wasn't laid on him at Calvary. He bore it. Whatever you're dealing with today, whatever sickness, I hear this word depression. Whatever depression, if you're dealing with depression today, consider the work of Calvary. That was placed on him here. Why? Because God doesn't want you bearing it. He bore it so that you would be able to have the revelation of his taking it. The word bear, it means to lift up, to carry away. 
and to remove. What do I need to do in order for that to happen? I'm struggling with this addiction. I'm struggling with this depression. I'm struggling with this disease, this discouragement. I'm struggling. What do I need to do? Just as the serpent on the pole was raised up and they were told to look upon it, you need to consider the work of Calvary. Oh, you need to consider the work of Calvary. You need to consider the fact that it was a perfect work. It was complete. That means there's nothing for you to do. There's nothing for you to do. There's nothing for you to do. There's, this is it. Consider the work. Consider the work of Calvary. Allow it to cause your heart to, to be uh, enlightened to the fact that He became sick so that you could be healed. Maybe, you have, maybe there's somebody here you haven't ever received Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. He took your iniquity. He took your rebellion. He took your sin upon Himself on the cross so that you could freely be declared innocent in the sight of God and made righteous. Say, what do I need to do? (laughs) Consider the work of Calvary. How do I respond? You declare in agreement with what God has declared. You declare, Jesus is Lord. Thank you, Father, that you put my sin on Jesus so that I could freely be made right with you, that I could be forgiven, that I could be justified, that I could be accepted, that I could be healed. Oh, my goodness. That I could be free from the penalty of sin that I could no longer have to worry about being punished for my sin but that I could fully embrace the blessing (laughs) fully embrace the blessing of the life of God that's what eternal life is it is God's life coming into you by His Spirit oh my goodness hallelujah Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Oh, hallelujah. Let's just raise our hands to the Lord. Father, we give you praise this morning. We're not in a hurry. We're not in a hurry this morning. Why? Because we know that there are people here this morning who are needing to experience your life, who are needing to be liberated from unbelief and doubt, who are needing to be liberated in their minds from depression and tormenting thoughts, who are needing to be liberated in their body from sickness and disease and uncontrollable urges and addictions. Hallelujah. Know that it is God's will for you to be healed this morning. It's God's will. It's where people struggle. They don't struggle with whether God can do it or not. 
They struggle with whether he will or whether, whether he desires to. Let that all be put to rest this morning. Why? Because he already did it. How could you doubt that he would do what he's already done? How could you doubt that God would do what he's already done? That's the problem with Christians is we're always talking about what God's going to do. The reason why is because we don't realize that he's already done it in Christ. And we're allowing the enemy to cause us to try and interpret by circumstances. Oh, and we accept his lies, his deception, because we look at the circumstances and we go, well, this is what I'm experiencing. Yeah, but if you would believe what God has declared, it would change what you're experiencing. That's what faith does. It appropriates what God has provided by grace, faith gives us the ability to see it and to grab a hold of it and see it manifested in the physical realm, manifested in healing, manifested in liberty. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. I'm taking this long on purpose. Hallelujah. Because I know there's some people here that need to receive from God this morning. I'm just giving you time to get in the right place. Because we're not trying to move God. (laughs) He already moved. He moved from heaven to earth back to heaven again. And He's seated at the right hand. His seating preaches the truth that it is finished, that it's complete. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. So we're going to invite you, if you have needs this morning, if you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, never received Him as Savior and Lord, Today's your day. Then God wants to fill you with His Spirit. Put you back in communication with the kingdom of heaven where you can speak God's language. (laughs) And He wants you to walk away whole in your body, healed. He wants you to walk away encouraged, not anxious. He wants you to walk away with a new vision for life that you can see that you don't have to walk bound by the circumstances, but that you can overcome through Him everything that is opposing you in your life. Before we do that, we're going to have our ministers come forward. But before we do that, I want Justin to come up. We're going to pray over this cloth. You're probably wondering why I'm carrying a cloth around. But little Riker went in the hospital. And... Uh, And uh, we are just going to, just the way Paul, they placed handkerchiefs on him. And when he preached, the anointing of God was transferred to that cloth. And then they would take it, lay it on sick folk, and they'd be healed by the anointing. (laughs) They'd be healed, and, and even demons cry out of those who were filled with the devil. And so the anointing is in this. 
And as the corporate body of Jesus, we are just going to release our faith together that as you place this upon him, that he'll receive of the life of God and the anointing that destroys the yoke and bears, breaks off the burden. So right now in the name of Jesus, Father, we thank you for the healing of little Riker. Father God, for this infection, be driven from his body right now by the anointing of God. Oh, and that your life would bring perfect health. Jesus' name, we thank you for it, Father God. Hallelujah. We thank you that it it is done. That it is done. That what's afflicting him now was placed upon Jesus so that he could receive the life of God, the health of God. We thank you for it, Father God. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Little brother. Hallelujah. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Hey, if you believe he's healed, give the Lord a hand clap. Hey. Hey. Hallelujah. I want our ministers to come forward. Hallelujah. Come forward. Come forward. Hallelujah. And if you're here, anything that's opposing you, nothing was left out. It's a complete work. Whatever you're struggling with, the provision for freedom and liberty is, has been made already today. But will you come up? Will you come up and let some other brother join together with you, their faith with your faith, and see a miracle today? What'd you come to see today? Did you just come to hear another message? Did you just walk out and go, well, that was good. Or did you come to encounter the true and the living God this morning? Oh, he's here. He is here. I'm looking at him. You are the body of Christ. Hallelujah. Yes, just come on up. Hallelujah. Just come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And this is a miracle-rich environment right now. I'm telling you. Thank you, Lord. Anybody that wants to come, come forward. There's no sense in just don't worry about what people think. You can worry about what people think and walk out of here and still have what's opposing you, what's afflicting you. Or you can say, I don't care what people think. I don't care what people think. I'm not going to allow the enemy or anybody else to keep me from coming up and partaking of what Jesus died to give me. Oh, he suffered a horrendous death so that we could have a glorious life. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Just begin to minister to the Lord. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. Oh, thank you for your generosity, Father God. Thank you for your generous nature of love that you desire for your people to be well. Oh, that we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Sickness, disease, the devil has no place, no right in this temple. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Let your glory, Father God, fill this place. Hallelujah. These people. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you. We worship you. You're so good. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Worship you. 
come up, partake of the great exchange. God's already made the exchange on his side. And you just come and partake of what he provided. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. said he's sensing that somebody in here has migraines that they've been dealing with when the Holy Spirit inspires something specific like that that means that God is calling you out (laughs) calling you out because he wants you to come and receive freedom liberty from that if that's you if that's you come forward you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I'm excited that people are receiving, Father God, that people are receiving. I thank you, body. I thank you, church, that you're being reverent in this time, allowing these people to connect with God, allowing God to do what he wants to do in the lives of these people. Thank you. We are all one. When one hurts, we all hurt we understand correctly. Lord, we thank you that you're meeting these people's needs, that they are partaking of what you already did for them, Father God. Oh, I thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father God, that people are meeting with you this morning, encountering you, the true and the living God. Thank you, Lord, that they are going to walk away changed, that they're going to walk away receiving fully what you provided for them saw ahead and you made the provision. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 
so good. You're great, greatly to be praised. Worthy of glory and honor. Worthy of our reverence. Worthy of our praise. We exalt you. Hallelujah. We glorify you. You're so generous. You're such a good father. You're such a good father. You're so generous. So extravagant with your gifts. We thank you, Father God. Oh, we thank you that you do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ask or even imagine, Father God. We thank you for it. Hallelujah. I pray that people right now in their seats, Father God, encounter you, Father God. Hallelujah. You say, well, how do I appropriate that? How do I partake of it? With the words of your mouth. Christianity is called the great confession. Hold fast the confession of your faith without wavering. If you need healing this morning, begin to declare in agreement with the word that by the stripes of Jesus, I am healed. Begin to talk to the Father about it. Say, Father, I consider the work of Calvary that Jesus bore my sickness so that I could be healed. Just begin to say that. Begin to declare it. Say, I command sickness and disease to leave my body by the authority of the name of Jesus and by the revelation that He bore my sickness on the cross so that I could be healed. And I just simply receive that, Father God. Thank You for it. It's a gift. What do you do when you receive a gift? Say thank you. (laughs) That's whether it's physical sickness, addiction, Whatever it is, just begin to declare. That's how you do it. You begin to declare it. Get in agreement with God. (laughs) You get in agreement with Him. You begin to confess or declare in line with what He has declared. Why? His Word is forever settled in heaven. His Word is forever settled in heaven. It is truth, not your circumstances, not what you're experiencing, not what you're feeling. His Word is truth. And when you begin to declare it, it'll become your reality. His Word has within it the inherent power to bring what it says to pass and manifestation in your life. Oh my goodness. Hallelujah. I remember, listen, can I just talk freely right now? I just feel like that I need to share this. I've told it so many times that I always just second guess it. But I remember, you know, for 20 years I was addicted to drugs. You do something that long, it becomes your identity. You do something that long, that consistently, you begin to believe that's who you are. And I remember, man, I remember saying, I guess this is just who I am. I can remember the moment I said that to myself. I said, I guess this is just who I am. I guess I was destined for destruction. I guess I was always meant to be a drug addict. I guess I always will be. I remember saying those words. Why? I had identified with my circumstances, with my experience. But I began to consider the work of Calvary. I began to see that he bore my iniquity so that I could be justified, 
righteous, blessed, and healed, I began to consider the work. And I took myself out of the equation. I found out that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away, and all things become new. I began to consider the work. Listen, I wasn't considering myself. I had already proven to myself my inability to do anything that would be pleasing unto God. To qualify myself for any kind of blessing from God. I proved, I proved that to myself. I didn't even think I could make a right decision in life whatsoever. But I began to consider the work of Calvary, the perfection of it. And suddenly I shifted my focus from myself to the cross. And I saw Jesus take my sin and God give me his righteousness. And I'm telling you that the, the faith came into me and I saw, because that's what faith is, it's the ability to see that what God has said is reality. And I just began to say, I'm not a drug addict. I am not an alcoholic. I am not destined for destruction. I am not a criminal. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am free from sin. I am free from death. I am free from sickness. I am free from addiction. And I'm telling you that that power of those things just began to fall at my feet and I became an overcomer through him who loved me not through my willpower but by beholding the work of Calvary by beholding the work of the cross by beholding the fact that Jesus already took it Mm. hallelujah hallelujah thank you Lord Mm. thank you Jesus Glory to God. Well, listen, we're still here. If you change your mind, you want to come up, we're going to be here. But I'm going to let you go. I know it's Memorial Day weekend. Hallelujah. I'm just going to let you go. We dismiss you in Jesus' name. Amen.